0: Welcome to Behind the Rind, the story and science of cheese. I'm your host, Claire, and today we're going to talk about the least understood ingredient in your cheese, rennet. And if you're like, oh God, wait, what's rennet? Don't worry, we'll get there. The year is 1980 and cheese is in a serious crisis. Americans fresh from the social revolutions of the 1970s are now beginning to turn their eyes from the Vietnam War to matters at home. Folks are getting woke to the farming practices and scientific processes that have produced their delicious veal cutlets, and they're not happy about it. People are starting to learn that an essential ingredient in their cheese comes from a calf, and that starts getting some vegetarians and animal rights activists pretty angry. In response to this growing social awareness and concern for animals, PETA is founded, and not just PETA, but dozens of other animal welfare charities. In 1987, Congressman Charles E. Bennett introduces the first bill to improve the treatment of veal calves across America. Chefs everywhere start dropping veal parmigiana, veal schnitzel, and veal medallions from their menus, amidst criticism from customers of the inhumane treatment of baby calves. And ever so quietly in the background the singular ingredient that was able to turn fluid milk into cheese is going extinct. Today, over 80% of the cheese that you eat contains one ingredient that didn't exist before 1980. In this episode, we'll cover a lot of ground, like 10,000 years of it, From the discovery of traditional animal rennet in the ancient world to the present day, where one singular type of rennet has literally revolutionized the cheesemaking world. Let's step back for a minute and recap what rennet is. Rennet is a catch-all term for the thing that coagulates milk. Other ways to think about it? The stuff that turns your milk from a liquid to a solid. The ingredient that clots milk. The junk in your cheese's trunk. Okay, maybe not that. Rennet gels or solidifies, sets, thickens, clabbers, clots, congeals, consolidates, and curdles. It is the single ingredient that turns liquid milk into a strong and solid cheese. And it's amazingly potent. One cup of single strength rennet can set 15,000 cups of milk. That means if you filled up the average backyard swimming pool with milk, it would take a little over one gallon of rennet to turn the whole thing into cheese. So, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. And us creative humans have, over millennia, discovered a variety of amazing substances to act as rennet. There are four main types of rennet that we'll talk about today. Let's get started at the beginning. Traveling back to 7000 BCE... That's like 9,000 years ago. There's one classic myth of the creation of cheese. It goes like this After humans domesticated small ruminants, like sheep and goats, a shepherd was traveling and needed to take some liquid sustenance with him. Having recently slaughtered, let's say, a sheep, he surveyed the stomachs of the sheep. Ruminants have four stomachs. I'll explain that later. And chose the fourth stomach, the abomasum, or often called the vel. Because, let's be honest, it kind of looks like a fanny pack. After drying the stomach, it turned into a leathery balloon fanny pack. And the shepherd was pretty pleased with himself. Mm -hmm. He filled the dried abomasum stomach up with milk and left for his trip. And a few hours into his journey, he thinks, dang, it's really hot. I'm so glad I brought some milk with me, like you do and reaches for a sheep stomach fanny pack filled with milk and, as you might imagine, goes to take a swig and is met with cottage cheese instead of milk. Something in that fourth stomach caused the milk to turn from a liquid to a solid. And legend goes, that is how cheese was invented. But I don't buy it. For one, if you remember in episode four when we talked about lactose, most adult humans throughout history have been lactose intolerant. It's only recently, and mostly in peoples of Western European descent, that the mutation of lactase persistence, or the persistence of that enzyme that breaks lactose down, has existed. So traditionally, milk was given to human children and babies, but adults? Adults wouldn't touch milk with a 10-foot pole. So why is this shepherd bringing milk with him if he probably can't drink it without getting a stomachache? Is he bringing his kids along on the journey? why aren't they in the story? Second, this fictitious dried abomasum fanny pack he has would have needed to come from a baby lamb to have its milk curdling effect intact. Because once ruminants are weaned off their mother's milk, they pretty much stop producing the enzyme that coagulates milk. And if he had gone through all the trouble to clean this lamb's stomach already, wouldn't he have noticed something odd in there? What seems like a much more probable story, but is undoubtedly less cool, is that the shepherd was slaughtering a baby animal, possibly for a religious ceremony, you know, animal without blemish or something. And in the process, noticed that every fourth stomach always contained chunks of milk. And so he tried it himself, bore a little milk in the fourth stomach, and bam, cheese was invented. Either way, humans' first encounter with an ingredient that would turn liquid milk into a solid, thereby making it easier to digest for adults and giving it a longer shelf life, was the stomach of a baby ruminant. Today, we call any rennet like this animal rennet. And if you're wondering to yourself why and how a baby ruminant's fourth stomach would turn milk into cheese, well, aren't you just at the right podcast? The function of turning liquid milk into a solid is essentially buying the baby animal time to digest the milk. By turning it into a solid, it doesn't move through the digestive tract as fast, and the body has time to break down the fats and the proteins to better nourish the young. This happens in all mammals, even humans. And the question of how is even more fun. There are these whole host of protein breaking down enzymes in ruminants' stomachs. But the most important ones are chymosine and pepsin. These enzymes, especially chymosine, act like scissors, snipping up the proteins in milk. Remember back to the last episode when we were talking about the protein structure of milk? Most of the protein in milk exists as casein in these microscopic protein balls called micelles. The micelle protein balls have a layer of kappa casein on the outside, with the alpha and beta casein on the inside of the ball. This is because the alpha and beta casein do not like water. They're super hydrophobic. (coughs) And what is milk but like 80% water? (laughs) Thankfully, the kappa casein is hydrophilic, it loves water, and it surrounds the other two caseins in a protective, water-loving layer. (sighs) So you have this image in your head of a tiny protein micelle, right? Floating around in milk? Okay, but add to that these tiny fuzzy hairs of kappa casein that stick off the edge of the micelle, making it look more like a fuzzy tennis ball. These tiny little hairs of the kappa casein attract water to themselves, which keeps all of the other little tennis ball proteins from sticking to each other and happily floating around in milk. This is until chymosine enters the ring. When you stir chymosine into milk, the chymosine, because it's a protease or a protein breaker downer, Gets out its scissors and, like a fabulous beauty makeover hairstylist, starts chopping off all the little hairs of the kappa casein. Once enough of the water-loving kappa hairs have been snipped off, the little balls of protein begin to revert back to their old ways as water-phobic. And they desperately seek out other protein balls to cling to to get as far away from the water as possible. And that's how you get curd formation in cheese. To recap, animal rennet from the fourth stomach, the abomasum, of a baby ruminant, a cow, goat, or sheep, works in turning fluid milk to solid curds, thanks to the enzyme chymosine, which acts like scissors, to give the tiny hairs of the kappa casein on protein balls called micelles a haircut, which turns them hydrophobic, and they flee the water and cling together for safety. But animal rennet ain't the only type of rennet. Or it was at least until the 1970s came along. So it's the 1970s and an increasingly globalized world has a ravenous appetite for cheap cheese. Skyrocketing demand for pizza had Pizza Hut opening its 1,000th restaurant in 1972. And a year later, Pizza Hut had expanded to Canada, Germany, Australia, Japan, and the UK. And the rennet that coagulated all of that shredded cheese had to come from somewhere. Thankfully, some scientists have stumbled upon this weird quirk of certain molds they've realized that certain molds can coagulate cheese just like animal rennet. Molds with far-out names like rhizomucor mihe. These molds work by cutting the microscopic hairs of the kappa casein, just like chymosine does. But they're not the best at it. If chymosine is a professionally trained hairstylist that charges $50 for a haircut, Mold rennet is the haircut you get from Fantastic Sam's for $5 from Bobby, who just finished beautician school last week. Mold rennet, which is often called microbial rennet, but that's confusing, so I think we should start calling it what it is, rennet derived from mold, mold rennet, has a few other unfortunate drawbacks. The first is an economic drawback due to the less-than-awesome haircut it receives. When making cheese with mold rennet, your yield isn't great. That means that if you have 10 pounds of milk, you might end up with less than one pound of cheese. From a financial standpoint, if you're a cheesemaker using mold rennet, you could be flushing a lot of lost cheese down the drain. The second drawback is that mold rennet can often impart a slightly bitter flavor in cheese. The longer it's aged. Mold rennet was a cheaper choice than animal rennet in the 1970s, and definitely a nice option if you were a vegetarian, but it still wasn't great. Then, in 1973, something seriously cool happened. Two scientists named Herbert Boyer and Stanley Cohen discovered that they could cut a single gene from one organism and paste it into an entirely different one. This was like moving from handwritten books to computers overnight. Everyone got really excited, and then everyone got really freaked out. There is a serious concern that some of these artificial recombinant DNA molecules could prove biologically hazardous. One potential hazard in current experiments is that... From 1973 to 1975, a moratorium was put on genetic engineering. Scientists had no idea what this crazy sci-fi tech was that they were developing, so everyone decided to take a serious pause and collect some more data. So how about we pause and take stock of where we are? It's 1975, and demand for cheese is exploding. But our only options for producing it are to rely either on animal rennet or mold rennet. Animal rennet is becoming prohibitively expensive because of the declining veal markets, and mold rennet can make cheesemakers lose money because it simply doesn't produce as much cheese per gallon of milk. If the cheese industry is going to meet rising demand, it needs a new solution for turning milk into cheese. To explain what happened next, we need to make a quick digression and talk about insulin, the hormone used to treat diabetes. In 1922, there was a kid by the name of Leonard Thompson, who was about to die. Leonard was 14 years old and weighed only 65 pounds. You see, being a diabetic before insulin was discovered meant that you usually had less than a year to live. The only thing doctors could do was prescribe an extremely restricted diet, often no more than 450 calories a day, and patients with diabetes usually died of starvation. That was until a Canadian scientist successfully isolated insulin from the pancreas of a dog, and 14-year-old Leonard became the first ever human to receive an insulin shot. Within hours, Leonard's blood sugar had dropped from its dangerously high level, and medical history was made. As scientists scrambled to produce more of this life-saving insulin, they realized that they would need a steady supply of animal pancreases to produce and manufacture the drug. So they turned to the meatpacking industry, and for the better part of 60 years, all diabetics were treated with life-saving insulin that came from cows and pigs. But remember, similar to animal rennet, these animals weren't being killed simply for their stomachs or their pancreases. Those parts of the animal were merely a byproduct of the meat industry that would be thrown in the trash otherwise. If you've ever been to Monterey, California, you may know that there's this beautiful conference center out on the point called Asilomar. After everyone freaked out about this new gene-cutting and pasting technology, an unprecedented meeting was called at Asilomar in 1975. Everyone from scientists to government officials showed up and for three days argued about the safety of genetic engineering. The result was a set of rigorous safety precautions and a consensus that genetic engineering research should be allowed to continue, provided that these precautions devised at the conference were followed. With the blessing of the scientific and regulatory communities, Herbert Boyer and the company Genentech accelerated their research, and in 1982, they had successfully replicated a 100% human insulin in the lab, which became the first ever genetically engineered product approved by the FDA for human use. Diabetics no longer needed to rely on the meat industry for their insulin, and as the cheese community, We owe a huge debt of gratitude to the research and discovery of genetically engineered human insulin, as this paved the way for the development of a new type of rennet that now produces over 80% of the cheeses worldwide. Just a few years after human insulin was created, fermentation-produced chymosine, or FPC, was born. This new rennet was called fermentation-produced chymosine because it's biologically identical to the enzyme chymosine that comes from a calf, but it's produced through a process of fermentation and genetic engineering. And when the FDA-approved fermentation-produced chymosine for use in cheese in 1990, it experienced a meteoric rise. Cheesemakers desperate for a cheaper and more effective alternative to animal rennet or mold rennet eagerly began making cheeses with FPC. In a mere five years' time, over 60% of cheeses made in the U.S. would be made with fermentation-produced chymosine. This new horizontal gene transfer technology allowed scientists to take the gene from a calf stomach that encodes for chymosine and insert it into a bacteria once and replicate it. Think of this new gene technology like a massive Kinko's printer. You put one original piece of paper into a copier, and then you can make infinite copies of it, while not requiring any more originals. This means that cheesemakers are able to use a 100% chymosine enzyme to coagulate their cheeses that doesn't need to rely on the veal markets. That's pretty cool. You see, humans have been genetically modifying stuff for the better part of 10,000 years, but we've been doing it through breeding. For example, All dogs are descendants of wolves, right? But put a pug next to a wolf, and the amount that humans have tinkered with wolves' DNA through artificial selection over millennia becomes clear. Or ever wonder why we call a football-sized purple vegetable an egg plant? It's because before humans started selectively breeding them, eggplants were actually small, white, egg-sized vegetables. And in breeding, humans had to rely on selective sexual reproduction of those organisms. This type of genetic modification is called vertical gene transfer, because genes are being passed from parents to offspring. (laughs) But what those crazy scientists Boyer and Cohen figured out how to do is what we call horizontal gene transfer between two entities, regardless of their generation. This means that instead of taking decades to breed a species of wheat that was drought resistant, they could do it in seven years. And so at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, cool, Claire, but how the flipping heck do I know what kind of rennet is being used to make my cheese? That's more difficult. See, the FDA doesn't mandate that the type of rennet be put on the label, and so most labels on cheese say seriously unhelpful things like enzymes. So here's my trick. Animal rennet is usually only in harder, traditional, or artisanal cheeses. Because of this, many cheeses from Switzerland, Italy, and France are made with animal rennet. Bonjour, Prego. Many PDO regulations stipulate that animal rennet must be used, and for this reason, cheeses like Parmigiano-Reggiano, or Brie de Meaux, or Emmentaler are made with animal rennet. And animal rennet is still revered in the artisanal cheesemaking world, because it's a unique cocktail of enzymes. of animal rennet is chymosine, and the remaining 20% is a whole host of other enzymes that traditionalists claim really set the flavor of animal rennet apart from their FPC cousins. Animal rennet is also allowed to be used in certified organic cheeses. Moving on to mold rennet, mold rennet is often listed as microbial rennet on labels. I don't know why, maybe because that sounds less scary. But because mold rennet has no affiliation to any animal, it's often used in halal or kosher cheeses and is seen as 100% okay for vegetarians. It also can be used in certified organic cheeses. And fermentation-produced chymosine is in just about everything else. It is also often listed as microbial rennet or quote-unquote enzymes on nutrition labels. Because the process that makes FPC is a genetically engineered one, cheeses made with FPC cannot be certified as organic. And there are some vegetarians out there that do take issue with the fact that FPC is in fact chymosine, but that's another episode. And there is one last type of rennet we haven't talked about today. True vegetable rennet. True vegetable rennet is a coagulant that has come from a plant and has mostly been used in ancient times as a substitute for animal rennet. Some examples are fig sap or bed straw, but the most common vegetable rennet that's still being used today is the cardoon thistle. The cardoon thistle is native to the Mediterranean, stands up to six feet tall, and honestly, looks like an artichoke head sex with a muppet. The cardoon thistle's bright purple stamens are all that you need, after being dried, ground into a powder, and then steeped into a tea are an excellent coagulant of milk. But they're almost too good. If chymosine cuts up proteins like a trained hairstylist, and mold cuts up proteins like a hairstylist one week out of beauty school, then true vegetable rennet is more like a five-year-old with a chainsaw. Yikes. Cardoon thistle rennet is such a strong coagulant, it can only be used in milk with an equally high protein content that forms a really strong curd. So it's usually only used in sheep's milk cheeses. There are very few cheesemakers still making cheese with cardoon thistle, and almost all of them are found in Spain or Portugal. My favorite cardoon thistle rennet cheese is a Portuguese one called Serra da Estrela, It comes in these small little rounds you can hold in your hand, and the way you eat it is you gently slice off the top, and the interior is so gooey and soft, you can dip it out with a spoon. (sighs) We did it! We covered 10,000 years of the history of rennet. For a cool visual timeline we made containing all the dates talked about in today's episode, click over to BehindTheRind.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, and you think we earned it, Please subscribe and rate us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I'd really appreciate it. Tune in next month for more stories and science from behind the ride.